Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 339. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Please buy their records and go see their shows and tell them the Jazz Session sent you. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. All About Jazz carries this show on their website, allaboutjazz.com. They've also got a widget that you can install on your website that will show the latest episode of the Jazz Session. And to get that, the easiest thing to do is just go to allaboutjazz.com and in the search box type Jazz Session Widget, and you'll get the code, and you can put it on your WordPress blog or anywhere else you like. And if you need some help doing that, let me know, and I'll be happy to help you. This show is member-supported, so if you like what you hear, please become a member. It's super cheap. For as little as 10 bucks a month, you can support the Jazz Session. You can also do it in yearly installments. And just a note that we're running a membership special right now. We are. <laughs> like there's a staff. There's no one. There's me. There's occasionally a cat in the room. Uh, we're running a membership special right now, me and the cat. And for the next two people who become members at the middle or upper level, either monthly or yearly, however you want to pay, but at the middle or upper membership levels, you'll get a copy of Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set Seasons, which is super cool. It's a recording he did of a concert for a guitar quartet. He wrote the music, and a guy named John Monteleone built four guitars that get played together, and each one is named after a season. And the piece is amazing. The video and the CD are both really cool. So if you want that CD DVD set, please do become a member at the middle or upper level. But actually, your membership at any level is super useful. So... Thanks to everyone who has become a member. My guest today is the pianist and composer Armand Denelian. His newest CD is called Leapfrog, and we'll hear the opening track from that record, and then my conversation with Armand. <laughs> Thank you. 
My guest is Armin Donelia, and his new CD on Sunnyside is called Leapfrog, and it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jason. I wanted to start off uh, talking about this album and talking in particular about uh, one of the relationships that you have that appears on this record, which is with the saxophonist Mark Momas, mm-hmm. um, with whom you've done a lot of work, and who's a, just such a great foil for your writing. And I thought maybe you could talk about how the two of you met and whether you knew right away that this was someone with whom you would enjoy working in the future. Uh, we met in 2000 at the Manhattan School of Music when I was um, substitute teaching uh, for one semester for David Lieben, who was on um, leave. And I taught a, a course in the music of Chick Corea. And Mark was a grad student at Manhattan School of Music at that time and was in the class. And uh, um, when I got to know him and... Uh, interact with him, I, I realized right, right away that he was um, kind of a step above uh, many of the other students in the class because uh, Mark was quite a bit older and more experienced and had studied you know, privately with uh, with Dave Liebman and Dick Oates and Gary Dial and a lot of other people in New York. And um, then the opportunity came for um, me to do a, um, a, a concert in 2002, um, a one-year kind of memorial concert after 9-11. And I thought, well, gee, wouldn't that be a good opportunity for Mark and I to try playing some duo? Because we had talked about that after the class, you know, we say, hey, let's stay in touch, you know. And uh, so I called Mark, and we got together and rehearsed, and um, and then we did this concert, and um, the chemistry was just immediate and unbelievable. We both like recognized right away that oh, we, this is something that we got to explore. We continued to do duo concerts. I invited him to play um, a number of concerts where I had booked solo concerts, <laughs> and so they became duo concerts. And then these duo concerts got better and better, and um, and uh, we, we we played in in Montclair, New Jersey, and uh, at the New School, and we we went to California and we did a. A workshop and concert out there in Fresno at the University of California. And, uh, the recording from, and we recorded all these concerts and one of these recordings wound up being our, our duo album, um, called All or Nothing at All on the Sunnyside label. And in, 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 as a result of this workshop that we co-taught, we also, uh, decided that we'd like to start teaching together as well. After I moved to upstate New York in 2000, and five, I uh, and Mark uh, started teaching uh, this uh, workshop up th- there at our home. Uh, my wife and I have a home there, and uh, we built a, mu- a small music studio on the side of the house. And uh, um, Mark and I uh, initiated this uh, with my wife. And my wife Rose is is also a uh, well, she's a, a travel consultant and also a part-time chef in a cafe in the area and so rose cooks and we teach and, and we do this for four days in uh, august every year and now we're going into our sixth year it's called the hudson jazz workshop and then uh, three years ago we went non-profit where you applied for non-profit status and so this helps us with fundraising and so on but uh to make it brief uh yeah mark and i um have uh developed a, a very uh, kind of close and musical and personal relationship um, and um, really 
happy about that. Chemistry is a word that comes up all the time on this show, maybe even once in almost all of the 300 plus episodes. And in your particular case, when you're using that word, can you, can you kind of help us go behind the curtain a little bit and tell, tell me what it is that, what it is that happened on stage or what you felt, what you heard that made you realize, oh, there is more here than in just some, some other pairing. Right. The word chemistry implies a reactivity or a kind of a, a combination uh, of forces and, uh, you know, release of energies that somehow is greater than the sum of the parts. And, and this is what happens when Mark and I play, that, you know, each of us brings our own um, talents and uh, techniques uh, to the table. Uh, but I, I, we can't explain it, but when we play together, it, 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 there's something that happens that uh, uh, goes beyond either one of us as, as an individual. And um, this is something that I've experienced uh, with uh, just a rare number of musicians. Um, I never try to explain it or analyze it. You know, just go with it. Sure. Um, we uh, tend to... Uh, uh, make um, similar uh, harmonic choices. Uh, of course, we're not identical by any means, and Mark makes his own uh, choices. I make my own choices, but um, there's so much kind of area of overlap in, in some ways that um, it, it's very easy for us to make music. There's an ease there, a comfort, um, and a mutual kind of camaraderie and, and, and kind of Challenging each other in a friendly way. It sounds somewhat like a, a musical Venn diagram where the the center is fairly large. Actually, the center yeah. of the two circles is fairly large. Yeah, and there's and another part of it is that um, you know there's there's an exchange of roles or a kind of um, uh, blurring. I shouldn't say blurring because it's never unclear, mm -hmm. but it's um, it's a willingness, you know, for us to be able to change roles. So sometimes I'm accompanying, sometimes Mark is accompanying me, you know, or sometimes we don't know who's accompanying and who's leading. You know, we're just both playing together. Um, a little bit like Scotty and Bill, you know, uh, Scott LaFaro and Bill Evans for the audience. That, uh, there were, there were moments when you'd have to be hard pressed to say, oh, I should listen to this person and not that person. It's the interaction between them that, is the focus at that point. Mm. And uh, with Mark and I, when we play duo, uh, um, there are many moments like that. Of course, there are many moments, of course, when we, we uh, kind of revert to more functional roles uh, for the needs of the music, and, and that's as it, as it should be. Um, without function, there could be no interplay. You know, just like, you know, without black, there would be no white. You know, the, it's the contrast that makes the other possible.
the new album Leapfrog is a, a quintet recording, and I wonder, are there things you have to do as a composer and as a band leader at the moment of performance to allow that same level of, of interplay and, and maybe role switching to occur when there are five musical personalities rather than just two? Well, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, when I <clears throat> started um, um, putting together the uh, repertoire for, for, for this album, which I, I still didn't know what I was going to call it, um, it was I, in those years when I first started working with Mark, I, I, I found, found a musical partner that I felt, oh yeah, now we can really build a group around this. Uh, and so we actually went through several incarnations of the quintet because um, originally I had in mind trumpet um, because I, I, I love that sound of the trumpet tenor quintet which goes back to my earlier albums I don't know if you mm-hmm. had a chance to familiarize yourself with Secrets and The Wayfarer both on Sunnyside as well and um, those albums were recorded in, in the late 80s and early 90s and uh, I love that sound <clears throat> So um, we tried the quintet with um, with John Carlson on trumpet, and for some reason, it, and John also, by the way, is one of my favorite trumpet players. Um, but somehow the chemistry didn't seem right with, uh, between Mark and John. Um, and I was look, also looking at the rhythm section too, and trying different bass players and different drummers. Um, and Dean is someone that I've played with for well, decades now, and uh, and Ty Sean, uh, sorry on drums, uh, I um, met him about ten years prior to this, and was amazed at his talent. And uh, I was looking for some energy in the rhythm section where there would be balance, but yet kind of a, a little bit of tension, mm. a little dynamic there. And of course, you know. Tyshawn being the fiery and mercurial kind of drummer that he is, I, I was looking for someone who could really lay it down in, in the bass. And, um, and Dean, uh, you know, kind of in my mind made a lot of sense. And when we first put it together and started playing, I, I realized that uh, this is going to work, you know. And then um, Mike kind of was always one of my favorite players. Um, Mike Moreno, the Mike guitarist. Mike Moreno, yes. Um, he and Mark and Tyshawn actually were all students of mine at one point. I could I could only say that they they were passing through on their way to <laughs> you know wherever they were going, um, and I was more or less a midwife, you know. <laughs> um, and I was admired Mike's playing, the clarity of his attack, and his tone, and. Um, the clarity of his mental focus, too. Uh, same, same for all the players. Um, and as a uh, kind of a balance uh, to to Mark, I, I felt that he would work well. And, and also I was looking for guitar. Uh, I felt that um, guitar would make the group have a more contemporary sound, um, much as I love the trumpet-tenor combination. But Mark's tenor playing and his sound are much more contemporary than, um, you know, musicians from the 50s and 60s. Um, and so it needed some kind of different kind of sound. And and uh, when we started playing together, I realized that it was going to work. But I had to change the writing, you know, an answer to your question, a long-winded answer. <laughs> um, I did have to rearrange 
the tunes because uh, at first um, tenor was actually on the melody and uh, uh, and some of the tunes and um, or tenor and trumpet were sharing the melody were playing in unison but um, with the guitar uh, and piano I found that um, by having the guitar play the melody uh, along with me and having Mark play a second line underneath that um, that, that there was a, uh, a space created, you know, that um, was very supportive of the melody, um, where I could not be the main sound. Mm. Uh, and I didn't want to be the main sound in this group. I mean, I do that in the trio. I do a lot of solo playing. I felt in this group that I didn't specifically want to be the frontline instrument. There is certainly a group sound to yes. the record. rather, And that than, was my yeah. intention. I wasn't exactly sure when to bring this in, but actually this may, this may be a good uh, point. You, uh, you're known equally as an educator as well as a, a performer and a composer, and you've written several books that have become uh, kind of standards in, for ear training, but you've also written a new book called Whole Notes, um, which everyone, anyone who's just listened to you describe the, I think meticulous is fair way in which you worked on the sound of this particular ensemble. Yeah. Wouldn't be surprised to learn that you have a, an equally detailed approach to the entire business of making music and playing music and playing an instrument. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that and about the book and what it's aimed at. Actually, um, was inspired by an idea, uh, offered by the publisher, uh, Veronica Gruber, um, because of my, um, previous association with the uh, advanced music company, um, uh, and the president of that company, Hans Gruber, uh, Veronica's, husband, uh, who passed away, um, unfortunately, in, in 2005, I had a relationship with Ver now with Veronica, who took over the company, and um, I had approached her with an idea of uh, publishing a book of my compositions. She said, Armin, you know, I'd love to, but, you know, those books don't sell. Even Chick Corea's book doesn't sell. And I was like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> kind of discouraging. But she said, um, but, you know, if you could find a way of, like, maybe writing a book about playing the piano, but using your tunes as musical examples, you know, we'd be happy to do that. So I said, oh, wow, there's a door. Let me go through that door and see what happens. I thought it and thought about that. And it took me um, over four years to write this book. Did you find over the course of writing that you had a more uh, – fleshed out and specific philosophy for your approach to the piano than even you had realized? Or did you know even before you began writing, these are all the things I'm going to tell the readers of this book? That's a good question. I I don't know if I was cognizant of a particular philosophy that I have. Um, but I know that... Uh, in accompanying for other musicians, uh, I've admired certain players. And uh, I guess I have kind of developed a philosophy. Uh, one of my favorite pianists is Duke Ellington, uh, who's not often mentioned, you know, as a pianist. Uh, we often think of Duke as a composer, as a band leader. Um, um, but as a pianist, he was... Very remarkable um, link between the Stride School, James P. Johnson, Art Tatum, and those guys, 
and the bebop era, Thelonious Monk and Bud Powell. You know, Duke was a very important link in there. He and also Nat Cole, uh, who again, more known as a vocalist, but as a pianist, very important. Um, because he could stride in the left hand, he could walk bass lines, or he could play rootless chords. Um, and uh, he could also play beautiful single note melodies, or he could just comp chords. And the philosophy is that I try to pare down my notes to those that are like the most essential ones that are needed to complete the fabric of the music. If I'm accompanying, say, for a fine vocalist and in a rhythm section, I'm going to be listening to her lines, and I'm going to be listening to the interaction of the rhythm section. I'm going to play in those spaces uh, or those regions, like I mentioned before about uh, leapfrog, um, where um, I can find contrast uh, without having to, you know, be overbearing mm -hmm. to be heard. Um, to find just the, the the least amount that's necessary. And if you listen to Duke and uh, and Nat when they play, um, uh, you know the one word that comes up is taste. Hank Jones is another one. Herbie has it too. Um, you know, it's just this uh, kind of resourcefulness and efficiency and kind of elegance and dignity to their playing that I really admire. I'd like to, uh, for listeners who may just be getting familiar with you in the course of this interview, fill in uh, some of your bio, which is extensive and huge, and we'd have to do several episodes to get it all in there. But I'm particularly interested in uh, your of uh, an Armenian descent, and I know that when you grew up, there was a lot of uh, kind of folk music and Armenian music in your home, and I wonder if uh, that lent something to your early music listening that you think still stand you in good stead now or things that still appear in your compositional style 
Well, it's funny. It's it's true that there there was Armenian and Middle Eastern. I should say not just Armenian, but Turkish, um, Greek, uh, Arabic as well. Music in our house. Uh, my father had a record collection, but he also listened to um, a lot of classical music. Mm. His, I think his favorite was Mozart, and then it was Beethoven and Bach. You know, and I, I took classical lessons for twelve years, and I studied all that music uh, in pretty serious detail. Um, and um, but in addition to those two strands, uh, there was jazz, of course, which I discovered um, when I was around ten or eleven years old. Because my older brother played um, clarinet in a Dixieland band. Well, actually, it wasn't Dixieland; it was Dixieland and swing. Um, and the band was led by a man named Arthur Ryerson, who uh, was the father of Ali Ryerson, probably know. Mm-hmm. And um, Mr. Ryerson uh, and his wife Chick Ryerson. Um, were just um, two huge music lovers and um, supporters in our community. And their children, uh, Allie, uh, and then her three older brothers, uh, Art, Rich, and John, were my peers growing up in school. And they had this um, uh, family band. My brother belonged to this band, and I got to hear them play, you know, at a Methodist church bazaar or something uh, one Saturday evening, you know. Was this in Westchester? This or was in Armonk, New York, okay. yes, in Westchester, yeah, where I grew up. And I heard that music and I said, that's it. <laughs> that's what I want to do. <laughs> oh, man, I just loved it. And Mr. Rice, and I still could see his face, you know, with a big smile from ear to ear, you know, playing the tenor banjo on Ain't She Sweet, you know. And, um, and then several years later, I was fortunate to get to play in that band. And we played some, you know, early standards like uh, Don't Blame Me and uh, Don't Get Around Much Any- Anymore and Daoud and a few other things, you know. And Did so, you make that transition between the classical studies you were doing and the, and the piano recitals and playing in that band? Did you make that tra- transition on your own or did you seek out people to study with? I had no jazz teacher. Okay. There was, in fact, this is something I mentioned in my book that there, there were no piano, jazz piano teachers in my area. At this time that I knew of, uh, they, they probably were there, but I didn't know who they were. And so I kind of fended for myself and I had to find ways of my own. But I was a pretty good imp- improviser already. I started playing the piano by improvising and making stuff up by ear. I had a good ear. I could sing well. Um, I had a pretty good sense of rhythm. I could keep my place in the music and the form. I had pretty good reading chops because I'd studied some classical music. Um, had decent technique because I'd studied classical as well. Um, and I played rock music and I played blues and, you know, I was playing folk music and with my sister and who's got a great, great voice as well. So, um, you know, I had some kind of, wouldn't call them street smarts because we were living in the, <laughs> in the country, <laughs> but I knew my way around the woods. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and I think, that that's very important for a young musician um, to find his or her own voice, you know, without a lot of prescribed formulas, you know, to say, okay, in this situation, do this, in that situation, do that. You know, I kind of had to find the answers on my own, at least in the beginning. And I don't mean this adversarially, but that's an interesting position to take while we're doing this interview in the new school and we just finished talking about your textbook and you've written books before that, it seems like a, a position that could easily come in conflict with the idea of being an educator, but it could not also if you're skillful. It's a very good it. point, Jason, and I, and I totally agree with you. Um, it's a fine line that we uh, 
have to uh, go on. And in this program, we talk about this a lot. In fact, Arnie Lawrence was the the founder of this program was very much on the side of let's learn by ear and put away the notes. Um, and then there are other, you know, musicians in, in the program who are like very much well, like, well, we have to learn our two five ones and, you know, uh, our modes and our 12 keys and this and that. And then we have to learn 50 standards and, blah, 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 and then you can play jazz. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, uh, you need both, hmm. but it's a question of how much of each. And finding the right balance in one's own practice. And this is where um, the um, master teacher comes in, you know, someone who's been through it all, you know, who kind of can listen to a student and discuss things with him or her and uh, uh, make a judgment about, oh, you need to do a little bit less of this and a little bit more of that. But it might not be the same prescription that the teacher would give to another student. And, uh, of course, this is the, this is the way real learning happens. And... <clears throat> You know, it's not like you go to a lecture class with 150 people and, you know, we all get the same thing. And then we're all expected to go out and memorize it. And then, you know, we learn our biochemistry or whatever it is right. that we're learning. <laughs> you know, jazz is very personal, you know, and, and that's why it's so intensive and uh, um, difficult to teach. So can we go back to yeah. now you're in the in the Ryerson okay. uh, band? Yeah, I'm in the Ryerson band. Uh, and... Um, our first uh, professional gig was playing in the World's Fair in 1964 for $5 and all the ice cream we could eat. <laughs> and it was where I really learned how to play jazz. I got I, The most important thing I would say that I got from that experience was the, the true meaning of swing and what, mm. what, what swing feels like, feeling that in my body and in my molecules of my body. Um, was yeah. there a set drummer in this band or was it a – Yes, yeah, sometimes we play with a drummer, but mm, I would say as well as not okay. uh, without. Um, so, um, and sometimes even without a bass player. So mm-hmm. I was, you know, very busy in striding those. in the <laughs> yeah. left hand sometimes or walking sure. bass lines, you know. Um, and uh, after the Ryerson band, uh, well, I, I uh, I studied for a year um, in my senior year in uh, high school with a teacher at the Westchester Conservatory where I had been taking classical lessons mm. uh, with a man named Erwin Stahl. Uh, and uh, Mr. Stahl was uh, kind of a protege or believer in Artatum and uh, Artatum's music. And so we um, uh, listened to and analyzed some of his music and he got me to learn more standards and um, – and then I was uh, at college uh, at Columbia in, in New York City, and, uh, and and that's where I met uh, Mark Cohen, who uh, now is Mark Copeland. Uh, but Mark was my classmate. Uh, he was two years ahead of me, and he had this little kind of lab band. We'd get together once a week and run through uh, Gigi Grace and Horace Silver tunes. And um, I remember seeing Mark play. At this time, he was playing alto saxophone hmm. um, and just you know using piano as a writing tool tool mark played a, a duo concert with uh, richard davis on bass uh in the columbia student union there and i was like wow this is pretty far out <laughs> <laughs> and so that was an important experience for me i'll just mention to the listeners that mark has been on this show so if they go in the archives they can hear an interview with mark and i wanted to ask you also at this mm-hmm. time did you have a view toward doing this as your profession during these years in columbia or were you still well, I hoped that I would, but I wasn't confident enough yet that I was mm-hmm. going to. So uh, during the time I was at Columbia, I was 
uh, studying jazz and transcribing solos, listening to Train and Miles and Herbie and Chick Corea and Jackie McLean and Billy Taylor and McCoy and, you know, just... Uh, Trying to absorb vocabulary, but again, not uh, without any um, formal education. Music, of course, there were no jazz schools. This was 1968, right? Okay, <laughs> Berkeley was uh, the only place, and that was in Boston. Sure. And even there, I would say, you know, they weren't that established yet. You know, um, uh, but there were a, a number of great teachers in in New York. Mark was one of them. After I got out of college, uh, I studied with Richie Byrack, and I was with him for a couple of years. Um, and um, Richie really opened the doors for me because, well, by the time I uh, started going to Columbia, I'd already been through the conservatory training and actually did a concert, a graduation recital, Chopin, Beethoven, Debussy, Prokofiev, and it was a pretty ambitious musical program. So I uh, was able to, with Richie, four years later now, it was 1972, to uh, combine what I knew about classical music and, the p- and playing the piano with, um, with jazz. And, um, and Richie opened up a whole kind of a window for me to look through and that was contemporary music and applying mm. contemporary improvisation uh, to to jazz um, so Harmony of Bartok and Schoenberg and Stravinsky and all these people Berg, um, he gave me a whole list of albums I should get and scores that I should look at and um, it was very revealing to me you know uh, and um, so I, I owe Richie a lot in that sense at the same time, I was listening to him do gigs. I went to Bradley's and listened to him with George Mraz and heard him with Dave Liebman and Lookout Farm Band. And um, and I was also listening to a lot of other people in New York uh, being there. Going to the steps of the Village Vanguard to hear Bill Evans and Keith Jarrett. And um, and you, uh, not not all that long later, were playing with folks like Sonny Rollins. Uh, and is was there a... You know, this is the great like Hollywood cliche, but was there some moment for you that was a a break, some phone call, or was it just the slow accumulation of well experiences? Uh, or both? <laughs> in nineteen seventy five, uh, after I had studied for two years with Richie, uh, from seventy two to seventy four, and then for a while I was uh, in a country rock band. Um, doing a tour of Sheridan hotels on the East Coast, um, and occasionally rehearsing with uh, uh, some Brazilian musicians, uh, Portinho, uh, Justo Almario, tenor player now mm-hmm. living on the on the West Coast, and uh, Amari Tristau, a vocalist uh, uh, and guitarist. Uh, uh, I we would we would be rehearsing at this rehearsal studio. I can't even remember the name of it now, uh, somewhere in, in Chelsea. And then one day, um, uh, I got a call from the studio uh, and said, "Oh, you know, uh, this guy here named Justo Almario. Um, he's a musical director for Mongo Santa Maria, and they're looking for a piano player. And uh, are you interested? You know, I can send him over to your house. You know." And, you could uh, um, run through a few tunes with him, and that could be like an audition. So uh, he came over, and we, we went over a few tunes, and one thing led to another, and um, 
and I was uh, playing in Mongo's band, mm. you know. And two weeks later, we were on the road, <laughs> you know, <laughs> touring in California. And then we made a record, uh, my first record. Uh, and that was, I would say, my breakthrough into the world of jazz because Mongo was very well known and respected by everybody. I mean, Herbie and uh, Chick both played in the piano chair in his band. Um, Hubert Laws and um, Sonny Fortune both played with him. Sure. You know, I mean, there were a lot of people that passed through that band. And so what happened after Mongo's band? Uh, Mongo was two years. And uh, during that time, I'd say, I mean, we, not only did we tour, but um, I um, networked with uh, a lot of other musicians because uh, sometimes we'd be playing in a festival and we'd be hanging out backstage with, you know, Cal Jader or Willie Bobo or, uh, you know, Rassan's band or whatever, you know. And um, so I got to meet a lot of other musicians and and that led to sessions and other gigs um so things started to snowball for me in new york and uh then in uh, 77 um i got called to play a few gigs with lionel hampton's band uh and uh, i did a short tour tour with him uh and then in 1978 uh again i got another one of these calls from the rehearsal studio uh, you know, Sonny Rollins is having piano auditions. You ought to come down, you know. <laughs> so I came down there, and he was auditioning um, three for, for either a pianist or a guitar player, and he wasn't sure who he was going to hire. So there was, I think there were two other guitar players and, a piano, and, and myself on piano, and he wound up hiring me. I hope you were bringing boxes of cookies or something to whoever worked at the rehearsal studio who kept giving you phone calls. <laughs> whoever that person is, they definitely deserved a, a nice card or something. <laughs> well, I think in those days it was like free joints or whatever. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, the cookies had a special ingredient. So, so talk about your time with Sonny. What was that like? Sonny was very sometimes hard to parse, you know, like what did he really want from me um, mm. as a pianist? But, you know, he, he had some charts and they were actually musically very simple charts. So some of these uh, kind of reggae tunes that gone around, round and round. Um, or, um, some, you know, some kind of standards like my one and only love or uh, something quite simple. It, w- it wasn't very, I would say, um, hard music in, in, in the sense of the chart. But what was challenging was playing with Sonny. Um, because the focus was all on on him and, and accompanying for him and making him feel good and um of course he always felt good <laughs> making me feel good <laughs> working with him um this is like my twisted mind you know <laughs> thinking about what what I should be doing but at any rate the first gig we had was in Philadelphia at a place called the Foxhole I think in the University of Pennsylvania um you know, it was like Friday night and the place was packed and it was sunny and the rest of the band and, you know, we're playing, 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 playing. You know, Sonny did his first solo, took 20 minute solo, you know, and then Orrell Ray plays. He played a 10 minute, 15 minute. Then time for me to come solo, you know, and so I played like, you know, three choruses and then I like turned and looked at Sonny like, yeah, you know, take it, you know. And he's like, play, play, you know, <laughs> come on, Armin. <laughs> so. He was very encouraging in that way. And, mm. um, you know, it was different than Mongo's band because in Mongo's band, there were kind of these formulas, you know, and they weren't really long solos. I mean, we all got a chance to play. But in Sonny's band, uh, there was a lot more focus on each one of us as individuals because the band mm. was smaller. 
Mongols was an eight-piece band. This was a five-piece five-piece band. And then, of course, just listening to and watching Sonny play and how he related to the audience and where he took the music. Sometimes he'd he'd be playing and then he'd turn around and I'd look at the band and start playing in a different key. Mm. You know, we just have to like, transpose them in the middle of a chorus, you know, or, you know, change tunes, you know. You'd be in the middle of a ballad and start playing, like, I don't know, some other tune. It meant, you know, really being present in the moment mm. with wherever the music decided to go. have a number of performances both in Europe and in the U.S. over the next several months, so maybe right. you could uh, tell us about those. Good. Um, well, let's see. Just uh, looking at my uh, list here, um, in uh, February, I'm going to be... Um, actually, before I leave, uh, the 17th, 18th, and 19th, um, the International Society for Improvised Music is having their annual conference at William Patterson University in Wayne, New Jersey, and I'm going to be doing a, a presentation for that conference. Um, and they can, um, people can find out more about that by uh, Googling International Society for Improvised Music uh, and then going to their website. Um, last, let's see, February 21st through the March the 1st, I'm going to be in Zurich, Switzerland uh, at the Hochschule for Music and Art and also doing um, a trio gig uh, a trio gig and a solo gig in Zurich. And uh, they can find out more about those uh, activities at my website, which is www.armenjazz.com, A-R-M-E-N-J-A-Z-Z.com. Uh, and then I'm going to Vienna shortly after that on March 3rd and 5th to do two uh, clinics, one at the Vienna University and the other in Vienna Conservatory. Uh, again, this is all on my calendar. Coming back March 15th, I'm playing in Rahway, New Jersey at Light Sound Space, a uh, beautiful uh, performance and uh, exhibition space in Rahway, New Jersey, managed by uh, my good friend Jim Luce who, as I mentioned to you early, earlier, uh, wrote the liner notes on my first album, A Reverie, on Sunnyside Records, and it's been instrumental in, um, well, the um, Tanglewood Jazz and um, a number of other um, uh, performance venues for jazz in 
in the metropolitan area. Jim uh, has been a, a supporter of, of jazz and fine music um, for many, many years. And uh, after, well, he was a DJ on WBGO for many years and then went into the uh, financial field for about 10 years, worked on Wall Street. I think it was Smith Barney or one of those um, brokerage firms. Then with that experience now has uh, um, received several grants, major grants, you know, for doing, um, you know, he did the Duke Ellington, Duke Ellington Bicentennial uh, broadcast and a Louis Armstrong Bicentennial broadcast. Um, I mean, these are major uh, projects and um, so Jim's got the, um, the heart and the head for, you know, making jazz happen. Um... Later on in March, I'm playing at the Castle Street Cafe on March 23rd in Great Barrington, uh, Massachusetts, that is, at Smalls Jazz Club in New York City on March 24th with my trio, which is uh, composed of uh, David Clark on bass, fine bassist and composer, teaches at Berkeley, and George Schuller on drums, Mm. um, producer and drummer and... uh, just an, another amazing musician I love working with. And, um, we've had this trio now since 2005, um, and our um, trio album, Oasis, uh, can be heard on Sunnyside Records as well. Uh, and then uh, at the end of March, on the 31st, I'm playing at 74 State uh, in Albany, New York, uh, a duet with Mark, uh, excuse me, with, um, with David Clark on bass. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should also mention in there, which I forgot, uh, on March 18th, um, I started to say Mark Momas. Mark Momas, uh, who we talked about earlier, was the saxophonist on my uh, new album, and uh, Leapfrog, and also uh, uh, my duo album with, uh, with Mark. Uh, we are doing a kind of a small concert up in Hudson, New York, uh, for the Hudson Jazz Works uh, on March 18th at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So people could go to um, my website and find out more about that. Um, then um, it's kind of open right now. I'm still looking at a few things in April and May. Um, and then um, later on in June, I'm going to be teaching in the Interplay Jazz Camp mm. in uh, Woodstock, Vermont, um, which was founded by great tenor saxophone player Fred Haas. Yeah, people can go to interplayjazz.com to find out more about that. And um, and I have a few more dates at Castle Street in July, September, and so on. And, uh, and usually once a year I play in Bryant Park, too. And I, I haven't gotten the dates for that yet, but I'll post those on my website when I find them uh, in the Bryant Park piano uh, series that they have there. Fantastic. Yeah, and then in August, uh, the Hudson Jazz Workshop Um in Hudson, New York, and this uh, is something that I really want to um, talk a little bit about. Um, the uh, workshop that Mark uh, Momas and I started uh, is uh, very small. It's only we only take ten people, um, and we're the only teachers, and, um, and we teach about. Uh, 25 hours a day of music <laughs> um, for four days, uh, August 9th through 12th in Hudson, New York. Um, talk about improvisation, composition, uh, how to practice, 
um, repertoire. We work in little master class situations. And then the participants uh, um, range in age anywhere from psychology age all the way through, um, you know, adults. And um, it's a wonderful experience. And I want to encourage people to take a look at our website. It's called HudsonJazzWorks.org. And they can find out more information about that. And we'll have a concert on Sunday, August 12th at 3 o'clock at the Hudson Opera House uh, with Joe Locke, our special guest, who will do a clinic that morning uh, and a concert in the afternoon with us. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a busy next few months, and I encourage people again to check out ArmandJazz.com, which will, of course, be linked at thejazzsession.com. My guest is Armand Danelian. His new album is called Leapfrog on Sunnyside, and it's been a real joy to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure, and um, I wish you well. Thank you. music from the album Leapfrog by pianist Armin Denelian. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. The show is member-supported, so please do become a member if you like what you hear and help keep this show going. It's free for you to listen to and always will be, but it is not free for me to make, and in fact, your memberships are what help me eat food and sleep indoors, and I enjoy both those things. And that's it for this show. Until next time, please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
拜。